You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey, Sidon Hill, so great to be uh, opening the Bible and looking at this topic of gender equality. But before um, I started, I really wanted to draw on uh, Steph as one of our in-house theologians, uh, literally for me, in-house theologians, but also here at church, uh, to really get into this, um, just I guess, start us off reflecting on uh, what the Bible has to say about gender and how that might be relevant for these social topics. So, but also want to acknowledge, Steph, you are a woman. I am. And so this uh, does... Good observation. <laughs> yeah, winning. Um, so this also has a personal personal dimension yeah. for you. So do you want to talk about, I mean, what was your experience growing up sure. and, and how has that sort of shaped your thinking about this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, positively, I had a, a really wonderful experience as a young woman, a young girl growing up in relationship to others. Um, my parents were always hugely supportive and encouraging of me, of really any and all of my, my pursuits. And uh, it just so happened that a lot of my pursuits, a lot of my interests were also interests that a lot of boys had. So I remember I used to love go-karting with my neighbour who was a boy. I'd go, you know, fishing and to the footy uh, with my dad. Uh, I could never work out or understand why girls used to sit in circles at lunchtime and just chat. And so I used to play soccer with the boys every lunchtime, pretty much every every day of primary school. And, um, and it just so turned out that in that circle, I was accepted or rejected, not on the basis of my gender, but whether or not I was a good soccer player. Turned out I was. Good. So uh, that worked out, um, yeah, really, really well for me. And I think, you know, the, the wonderful thing about um, being treated equally, not to say that there weren't a few, you know, um, sexist jokes here and there, um, but largely because of my positive experience, I was never pressed to feel the need uh, to be treated equal because the effect of being treated equal is that you can just get on being. You don't need to think about that. And so that was a really uh, wonderful gift that that was my experience as so a kid. So later on you um, become a Christian, later in life. Um, how does that sort of um, enter into that story of you thinking about uh, yourself as a woman? Yeah, great. So when I was uh, 17, my friend gave me a Bible. I went along to her church and after the church service, I went down the front and the pastor of the church gave me a Bible, and uh, I'd never read the Bible on my own before, 17 years of age. So I opened it. Uh, I've always been a hopeless romantic then, still now. So I went, of course, to where hopeless romantics go, and I, I looked out uh, onto the passages of uh, marriage, and I read the Apostle Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 that a wife should submit to her husband, and I was shocked, <laughs> and very, very shortly after, horrified. Uh, the idea that there was a distinction of any type, really, within gender uh, between men and women and a, a difference in role was... I personally found that outrageous and offensive and shocking. Yeah. Now you worked through that somehow. <laughs> um, how, how did that go for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as I was reading the Bible, I, and it was new to me, I thought, well, maybe if I read more of the Bible, the whole of the Bible, it helped me understand this part of the Bible and other parts of the Bible. And so that's what I did. I read the Bible and I met Jesus. You know, I, I was compelled by the person, the ministry of Jesus. I was compelled by his power, you know, raising people from the dead and healing the sick, 
was compelled by his wisdom. His teaching really made sense of life for me. It's compelled by his extraordinary love. And most of all, uh, as a friend explained, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross on my behalf, taking my sin and death and defeating that, rising above it, uh, I, I found that extraordinary, compelling. I put my trust in Jesus. I became a Christian. And then I was committed from then on, I was really kind of contending with these more difficult passages, knowing that I knew that Jesus, the God who was at the center of that, and I could trust him, that he was good. And so that kind of drove me to work through these issues, to keep exploring and going deep. And, and while I have a lot to learn, and these are complex, uh, this is a complex topic we look through today, uh, what I have come to see is that God's vision and God's creation of humanity as male and female, as equal, as of the same stuff, of the same substance, but also different and distinct, each bringing something different to the table in order to serve their unity in the kingdom of God as profoundly beautiful and wonderful, not only for me, uh, but also uh, for our church and society at large. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, can you walk us through a bit of that journey? Just maybe where do we start thinking about gender? Great. Yeah, a great place to start is where the Bible starts, funnily enough, uh, in the book of Genesis. You know, we read, at the very beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth into a raw chaos, nothingness. God speaks. He brings order and increment by increment, uh, God creates the world, all the heavens and the earth. So we see the sun and the, the moon and the seas and the sky and the land and everything, all the creatures within it. And this is all building to the pinnacle of, the, of creation, the high point, the creation of Adam and Eve, of man and woman. And God says, Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So the very core of their creation Man and woman reflect the image of God. They are together in unity to reflect God's holiness, his creativity, his, his love, his glory, his wonder. I mean, how extraordinary that we could just sing then of the holiness of God and that core to our identity as man and woman is to reflect that, image that to the world. Uh, so an extraordinarily, extraordinary privilege there. And he creates... You know, Adam first, he breathes life into Adam and he creates a wo woman from Eve, from the rib out of Adam of the same stuff, of the same essence, because God said it is not good for man to be alone. I'll create a helper for him. And together, they're able to set out on God's mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the, the air and every living thing that moves along the ground. So diving into that helper idea there for a second, um, what did he need help with? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that it was because Adam was lonely. Uh, you know, uh, he was with God in the garden, right? So that's pretty extraordinary company. I think the, the problem was is that Adam wasn't able to fulfill God's mandate alone. God had created Adam, given him an enormous responsibility uh, Genesis chapter 2 said that God created Adam and immediately puts him in the garden and he says, go work it and to care for it. Huge responsibility. He can't do this alone. He needs help. <laughs> and what's the response to that help? It's not significantly another man. It's someone who is of the same stuff, of the same essence, 
one with him in humanity, but who brings something different to the table, who brings something distinct that enables Adam and together they're able to serve God's mission and mandate to fulfill that in a way that they couldn't otherwise. They're able together in unity to increase in number, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule and relate and create, to take part together in God's, God's work. Mm. Now, as we uh, read through the story, um, yeah, do you see that pattern kind of coming up again, like that, that kind of equal partners working in God's mission? Yeah, I love looking at that throughout both Old and New Testament, actually. I mean, you look at the Old Testament and you see uh, men playing a significant, certain men playing a really significant leadership role among the people of God. You think back, you see Noah who's there hammering wood when there's not a drop of rain, everyone thinking he's crazy building an ark. Why? Because God told him to. <laughs> and we see Adam, uh, Abraham, the father of all faith. We see Isaac and we see Jacob. Uh, we see Moses brought up to the mountain face to face with God, given the law and trusted with the responsibility of handing the law to God's people, of directing them, leading them in the law, the way of God. We see Caleb, who trusts God when everyone's freaking out about uh, the people on the other side of the land that God's given them. We see Joshua, strong and mm. courageous, uh, leading God's people. So many, many instances of men taking unique leadership responsibility. But as we read through the story of Israel, we see that they don't do this alone, do they? So we see Deborah, the prophetess, getting alongside Barak, uh, who is the commander of the Israelite army leading God's people, Israel, into the promised land. Uh, we see Yael, who I love, who gets alongside both Deborah and Barak in assassinating the enemy commander Sisera uh, to Israel by driving a tent peg through his temple. Ouch. I know. To this day, I don't know, I don't know why more uh, girls in the church aren't called Yael. I just I'll put a vote for it. Put yeah. a vote for it. Um, but so many other, you know, instances, and you see Hannah, whose mighty prayers gave, uh, led to Samuel, one of the, the great prophets of Israel. We see uh, Esther, who partnered with Mordecai in leading the kind of Jews, saving the Jews from genocide. So many, many significant men and significant women, women together working to serve God's mission. Uh, and that's true also of Jesus' ministry as we look to the New Testament. That, that same principle is at play. We obviously see Jesus called 12 male disciples to himself. They have a, a profound uh, responsibility ministry as they teach uh, the word of God, as they proclaim the kingdom of God. But we also see that they don't do that alone. Uh, there's so many examples of that. One example that comes to mind is Luke chapter 8, where you see that you know, Jesus is traveling from one town to the village to the next and it says that he's traveling with the 12 disciples but also a significant group of women you have joanna and susanna you have um, mary um, and you have uh, it says many others and these women we are told are actually patrons of jesus ministry they they fuel it they enable it make it mm. happen women first resurrection uh, witnesses to the resurrection of jesus uh, many women and men held out as great examples of faith so there's no no doubt in Scripture that as we look through Old and New Testament, we see this co-partnership, this co-laboring, this bringing together of difference, of distinction, of different things to the table, but ultimately to serve their shared unity uh, in one purpose, one mission under the kingdom of God. Mm. Now, in that um, partnership together, do you see distinctions in um, what each of us brings to the table as men and women? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, one obvious place to start, I think, uh, although becoming less obvious perhaps in our society today, is our biology and anatomy. Uh, that fundamentally allows us and allowed Adam and Eve to, to procreate, to kind of fulfil that, that mandate of um, uh, filling the earth, subduing it. That's one part of it. Uh, but our distinction also serves or plays out, I think we see in Scripture, in some difference in roles. Uh, in the beginning, in Genesis, we see that a woman is given the privileged role of helper uh, to come alongside Adam, to, to partner with him together in their shared responsibility. I think it is worth noting that in the book of Genesis, uh, that role of helper, it isn't kind of sketched out in great detail. So, it would be wrong of us to be overly prescriptive, I believe, about how that role of helper is to be played out. Uh, as we come to the New Testament, however, we do have some more distinctives, uh, some more detail about how that role plays out, particularly in regards to the home and in regards to the church. Uh, so thinking on the home, you think to the passage I referred earlier in my own story, Ephesians 5, we see that uh, the husband is given the unique role of, it's called a head, headship, responsibility of headship. Uh, and uh, the nature of that headship is to reflect the headship of Christ, of his church. What's the nature of Christ's relationship to the church? Christ laid down his life for her, <laughs> gave up his life for her. So the character of that headship has to be the character of service, of laying one's life down for his bride. Uh, the reciprocative role of that is the role of submission, to welcome that, uh, to give space for that, to encourage that, to give thanks for that, and to benefit, really, uh, from that. So that's the nature of the home, those distinct roles in the home. We also see a similar dynamic at play in regards to the gathered church, the relationships that are structured within the gathered church. Uh, in books like 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that there is a certain uh, uh, role and a reserved role for a, an overseer, a shepherd, uh, with a particular authoritative responsibility uh, that is reserved for a man. And uh, that's a responsibility yet yeah, to shepherd uh, the church under his care, ultimately, as he submits uh, to God. And then we have a picture of men and women, both under that authoritative role here at City on a Hill that, that's expressed in our role of, of lead pastor, which obviously Guy occupies. And um, together, men and women under that, we each play our part. God's given us unique gifts, unique responsibilities to come together as a body of Christ to play our part in the, the building of Jesus' church. Beyond that, beyond the, the home, beyond the church, the Bible isn't overly prescriptive about how roles are to be played out. Um, that's not to say we shouldn't be thoughtful about how we all bring our uniqueness and distinctness to the table in society at large, over, only to say that we shouldn't be overly prescriptive about that. Okay, so a backdrop of, of unity and equality with some moments of distinction in certain contexts. Uh, is that it? Anything else? Um... Yeah. Oh, tick, done. Okay. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's insignificant that our biology and anatomy is one of the most primary uh, distinctions of our gender. And I say that because, you know, when you unpin, detach biology from our distinctness, then you, all you have left is stereotype, right? Uh, and that's not helpful. 
So the fact that our biology and anatomy really kind of distinguish us on a, uh, quite a fundamental le level of male and female, it opens up a whole realm of possibility about what it means or looks like to be a woman. It means that I'm both happy wearing a pink, very pink jacket today, pink. but also playing soccer with the boys <laughs> and going go-karting, and that doesn't make me any less female in the same way that there are men who love flowers and women who love meat, and let's praise God for that because that's multiple versions of masculinity and femininity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We love flowers. And um, so I think that's significant because we don't want to resort to stereotype. Uh, that said, I think it's also okay to give space for some generalities in personality traits. It's worth saying that this doesn't come from, kind of from scripture, but studies in psychology, particularly in the area of uh, gender, behavioral traits, just recognize that generally there are some differences that play out uh, between men and women. I mean, one example, there's been studies that have said generally men tend to be more disagreeable. Uh, she's about to disagree with me. No, they don't. No, no. <laughs> uh, exactly. And uh, women um, tend to be more agreeable. That is not to say, and this is the way, of course, that generalizations work, that some men are more agreeable than some women and some women are more disagreeable to men. Uh, but I think it's good to give space to that in the way that it gives colour to the importance of men and women bringing their distinctness together in society so that we can be better together and express the full vision of humanity that is at mm. play. Yeah, so what you're saying is subtle differences, but mostly women are human and men are human. <laughs> <laughs> and we're humans together. Same stuff. Amazing. The same okay. essence. Distinct. <laughs> um, so helpful as we could look at some uh, specific issues in, the, in this series. Steph, would you mind praying for us I and for me you. as we dive into some of these issues? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much uh, that you are a good, holy, creative, wonderful, beautiful, loving God. Thank you that in your goodness you have made us, man and woman, humanity, one, equal, distinct, together in Christ. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be with us this morning as we continue to think this through. Uh, inspire us by your spirit, move us, empower uh, to be all that you've made us to be, to know you and to reflect you to the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Steph. Uh, what we thought we'd do now, there's so many issues that, I mean, gender equality is huge, right? So there's so many issues that we could be talking about. Thanks, Alice. Um, so we thought what, um, what might be helpful now is just to set the scene a bit and then to dive into some case studies, if you like, of how we as Christians might think through these issues together, um, but with our Bibles in hand. So I just set the scene a bit. Um, when I got this topic, I, I couldn't help but think back to um, March the 4th last year. Remember back, thousands of women marched to Parliament House uh, to present a petition demanding equality for women and specifically uh, in response to some of the terrible revelations um, of violence against women and sexual harassment going on in that place. Uh, the crowd was addressed uh, by former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins, who spoke powerfully from her own experience and the betrayal she th felt from her employer when um, those allegations came to light. Uh, the Prime Minister declined the invitation to address the rally. He instead uh, offered to meet with the organisers privately, but they uh, turned that down. Um, the, the Prime Minister, interestingly, uh, described this as a, as, as a bipartisan issue. We're all against gender inequality, right? We're all for equality. 
At the same time, the opposition leader criticised his response for being, uh, quote, not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete on the issue. And I think why the the focus of these protests really uh, gathered the national interest at the time was that it struck a nerve. It it wasn't just about what was going on in Parliament House, as horrific as that culture seems. It also highlighted these issues of equality and respect uh, in all aspects of our society. A little bit after that, the Australian Human Rights Commission released its report, uh, calling the, the set the standard report into uh, the prevalence of workplace harassment, sexual harassment at work, and it found that basically in every industry, in every part of society, uh, there is sexual harassment. Now, some men experience sexual harassment, but overwhelmingly, it is women who are experiencing sexual harassment at work, and the perpetrators are usually men at the same level of seniority. This is not confined to the workplace, though, either. Um, When I um, teach my students preaching at at Ridley College, I tell them, um, and I'm aware of this now, that if you speak to a room of 100 people, 44 of those people will have experienced domestic or family violence in their past, and 17 or 18 of them will have experienced it in the last year. I'm aware of that now. And I'm conscious that while a surprising number of those people are men, and I want to acknowledge that, the majority of those people are women who have experienced violence, and the majority of the perpetrators of that violence, the men choosing to use violence, are men. This uh, harassment and this violence also takes place, uh, it's worth saying, against a, a broader background. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Most of the politicians who responded to these allegations in Parliament House were men. Senior management positions, board leadership positions at most of our large companies are held in the majority by men. And then there's the the pay issue. The the fact that uh, women's pay sits somewhere on average between 6 and 18% lower than men, depending on where you are in your career. And that, by the way, is across industries. Even, I was surprised to learn recently, uh, Uber drivers, female Uber drivers, earn 7% less than male Uber drivers. And this actually points to some of the complexity that we want to be wrestling with on this issue. Because uh, on the conservative side, people often say, well, hang on, you don't get to choose a female driver on Uber, right? So how could this be? How could there be a 7% lower gap? And the reason is, it's one of the reasons, is that female drivers are less likely to choose to take the most profitable trips. The late-night drunken pickup 2am from... Uh, a nightclub, right? They're less likely to take those surge price trips in the middle of the night. But on the left side, they point out that, well, hang on, that's not just a choice, uh, a preference, right? That happens against a backdrop in which women are more likely to be assaulted. Uh, Women are more likely also to have unpaid work at home to do during those hours. Even when both both parents work, women do more of the domestic labour and have... uh, Well, for the last 15 years since they've been asking this question in the census, it turns out even when both uh, husband and wife work, the women do more of the unpaid childcare and the women do more of the unpaid housework. Which explains why the gender pay gap uh, gets really significant around about the age 35. Up to 35, men and women earn almost the same. But at 35, the pay that women receive and the pay that men receive on average starts to go in different directions. Coincidentally, it's at age 31 to 34 that most women have their first child. 
And you don't have to be an economist to work out the link between those two facts. So it's complicated. It's a complex social picture, and they're all interconnected. So I'm actually really grateful to Guy and the team uh, for the invitation to explore these things and to bring some of our Bible into this uh, discussion. Uh, just to uh, kind of address two things. Firstly, some people uh, find it uh, weird when I talk about gender equality issues, which I do from time to time. Uh, surely that's a women's issue, uh, to which I say, actually, it's a human issue. As uh, Kate Jenkins, the uh, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, says, sexual harassment is not a women's issue, it's a societal issue, to which every Australian and every Australian workplace can contribute. So that's uh, why I'm grateful for the opportunity whenever I get it to talk about this. Second, low, another question which you might be having is, hang on, is this, does this belong in a left and right series? There's no vote one inequality party, right? There's no, both sides agree. On the whole, both, whatever side of politics you're on, you're in favour of equality. And that's true, but dive beneath that headline, we're all for equality, and the question of equality of what starts to become more significant. It's what you put after the word equality that becomes really significant. Um, one way of thinking this through is just to ask four questions. These are my four questions for thinking good about something theologically. What is the reality? Why is that way? How should things be? And what will we do about it? Right? So it's the what, why, should do. You can take that uh, and use it. Because our disagreements on this issue come at one or more of those levels. Right? We might totally agree on the what, right? the, the reality of the gender pay gap, but then disagree on why and the causes that are leading to that pay gap. And then we might actually disagree on what things should be like. So uh, on, as a, a, a massive generalisation, people on the left tend to look at outcomes. So we want a quality of outcomes. We have a quality when we earn the same amount, men and women. Whereas typically on the right, I should do that, you're right, on the right, uh, we tend to look at equality of opportunity. Okay? As long as uh, you have the opportunity to be a CEO, even if you don't choose to go down that path, that's equality. So is it equality of opportunity or equality of outcome that we're most concerned with? If women are choosing not to work higher paid jobs, then that's fine on the right. But on the left, we might be asking more questions about why those choices are being made. Does that make sense? So we have equality of what, and that feeds into our final step of what we should do about it. The what, the why, how should things be, and what do we do about it? So we'll often um, come to these issues with a different picture of how things should be. Now, I have my own perspective on this, obviously, but what I'm trying to do today, I'm hoping we can do together, uh, is uh, work with these issues with our Bibles open and at least bring our discussions, as we continue these discussions, back to the Bible, to be thinking theologically, uh, because they're not just questions of statistics, they're not just questions about uh, policies, they're questions about what vision of society we have and how we think things are meant to be, which is where our theology comes in. So um, two issues I'm going to pick. Oh, I could pick so many issues. I'm going to pick two and deal with them very briefly, and that'll hopefully start some conversations. The first I want to look at is the issue of equal voice, equality of voice. I take a very personal interest in this because my name is Andrew. In 2020, there were nine ASX-listed 200 companies led by women, which is actually down from 2018. So there were nine ASX 200 companies led by women. At the same time, there were 12 ASX 200 companies led by men called Andrew. Now, I'm going to put myself uh, out here and say, I think Andrews are excellent. 
invariably above average, as far as I'm concerned. However, it's a stretch for me to say that Andrews are better than all the other women put together. Right? So we have here an inequality of leadership, of voice, of power. And in politics, it's a similar story. Uh, women make up half, roughly the population, but are only 38% of representatives in the House of Representatives. We've had a grand total of one female prime minister. Now, that's the what of the situation. The why gets more tricky, and what we should do about it uh, gets more tricky. Should political parties, for instance, have uh, uh, quotas, you know, affirmative action interventions, uh, which put a quota on how many female candidates a party has to put up for winnable seats? Or should they just put up whatever candidate they think has the best chance of winning that seat? And different sides of politics have come to different conclusions. You might come across this in uh, your own sphere, in, in, in your, your board, say, how many women should be on the board of your company, or in the executive team or in leadership in other areas. Now, I've checked. Book of Deuteronomy doesn't have uh, anything under the heading democracy or quotas or affirmative action. We can't find a verse for you from the Bible on this. But does that lack of a proof text mean that we have nothing to say on this issue? No, actually, I think we have a lot to explore here. And as Christians, uh, we want to be looking at these issues within the story of the Bible, the story of creation, of fall, and redemption. And very simply, at the, at the side of creation, exactly what Steph said, the Bible teaches us very clearly that men shouldn't try to run the world on their own. That's not the way it was designed to be. Men shouldn't, shouldn't try to run the world on their own. It's not just a question of fairness. It's actually a question of outcome, right? Because if we were exactly the same, except for our reproductive organs, it wouldn't matter if you had a room full of men making all the decisions at one level. But actually, we are different, and we bring something different to the table, as Steph said. So we care about this. And in fact, the Bible celebrates, throughout the story of Israel into the church, the, the different uh, things that women and men bring to the table. And I'm particularly struck in Israel, when things are going well, they're drawing on the wisdom of women. It starts to become a real pattern when you look out for it. The wise woman into a situation is always a sign that things are going in a, in a good direction. Uh, I think of Abigail and her quick thinking. I think of the, the city of Abel Beth Makar. Look it up. Uh, it's a great story. The women of the city save the city by intervening diplomatically with the commander of an army. Or I think of the, the great story of Israel itself heading for disaster when Hilkiah, a male priest, seeks out the wisdom of Huldah in order to save the situation. He goes to her to find her wisdom. And the king listens to that, and the nation is saved. And we, of course, only need to look at Jesus and the way he treated women to understand that this is how things should be. I asked my, my friend Laura Free, who is one of our great gospel community leaders here, um, for her reflections on this. And she said something interesting. She said, uh, people often focus on the compassion of Jesus, the compassion Jesus has for women and the examples of him commending their faith. But I also love the way that he treats women as capable and thoughtful. Even, she goes on, um, capable of receiving his rebuke and then responding in faith. Jesus sees women as capable and thoughtful. I love that. She goes on, when I look at the way Jesus treated women, I feel respect for, respected and empowered. And that's the way it should be from creation. 
So that's our creation, but we don't live in the garden anymore. So we also have to think about the fall, knowing that this world is not the way it's meant to be. How does that impact how we think about this? Well, one way I, I want to put forward is that um, we should be aware that the things we try to do uh, to bring equality sometimes get frustrated. We need to be aware that the fall means that some of our best intentions efforts will be frustrated. There's some research that's come out that says that in the last 20 years, companies who put in place diversity training designed to address this issue have gone backwards more than the ones who didn't in their gender equality, which is how things are in a world after the fall. With best intentions, you can end up going backwards. Now, um, this actually challenges both sides of politics, I just want to point out. So typically the left has been uh, more willing to consider affirmative action. So in the left side of politics, they started off with about a quarter of the uh, representatives being women. Now it's about half because they put in place quotas. Right? So quotas, they work, great. Except in a fallen world, sometimes those kind of interventions have a negative effect or can be perceived as having a negative effect. Is it fair to discriminate against a good male candidate in a job interview in order to redress this imbalance? Does it tokenize women who contribute? As um, Dr. Fiona Martin, a Liberal MP, put it, I didn't come to Canberra to fill a quota. And in fact, when we use quotas on their own, sometimes they can be counterproductive in other ways or have unexpected consequences. Um, I know that in tertiary education, where I work, it's, very, uh, it's much easier to put in place a quota for, a, um, for board positions or for panels or for research grants that's much easier than actually investing money further down the pipeline in raising up young PhD grads who are women. But you see, if you just do the quotas and don't do the hard work, you end up with the four women in academia working so hard to fill all those positions that they don't get any research done. Right? There's a well-documented, unexpected consequence of well-intentioned policy. So it's complicated. That's all I'm trying to say. We're in a fallen world. Things are complicated. And we need to be alert to our unintended consequences. On the right side, though, right side, we also need to be aware that, sure, um, quotas might be uh, unfair or perceived as unfair. And we might say, well, maybe women are less interested in those leadership jobs. From the perspective of the fall, though, maybe we'd say, OK, it could be that fewer women want to be in politics. But maybe also it's that rampant culture of sexual harassment in Parliament House that's turning good candidates off. We don't want to be too naive on that side as well. Maybe you need something as blunt as a quota in order to make progress in an imperfect fallen world. So the fall frustrates us on both sides. And as Christians, we want to be open to the nuance of that. But thankfully, before we get too despairing, I want to be aware that there's also a third perspective as Christians, and that's the perspective of redemption. What do you do as a man if you find yourself in an imperfect system? You find yourself the recipient of unfair advantage. I speak to a lot of men who, frankly, just don't know what to do with this. In fact, the easiest thing is for them to just withdraw and not put themselves forward for leadership because they feel like maybe they're taking a woman's place or um, somehow being beneficiaries of this discrimination. They have little guidance on what to do with their ambition to lead and to serve. At the same time, some men can feel um, sidelined or even belittled by campaigns to uh, address gender imbalance because we say things like, 
we disparage male leaders for being male, pale, and stale to their face, which is not the type of God-honoring, image of God respect we should be applying to anyone. It's just as bad to have a gender stereotype going that way as against women. We're not all daddy pigs, incompetent, bumbling, and arrogant. All right? So actually, we need to be careful that how we approach these things don't leave us with nothing to do. Thankfully, the gospel actually has something for us to consider. Right, both sides of the debate assume that the, the only solution is to reallocate power. But on its own, that's not enough, says the gospel. The gospel says you actually need to change how you think about power. Those with power, those in positions of privilege, need to see that not as something to be used for their advantage, to be grasped for them, but to be used for the good of others. And the reason we can say that is because that's what Jesus did. Philippians 2, though he was equal with God, which is pretty high, he made himself nothing. He became a servant for us. And so if you find yourself uh, as a man or a woman, for that matter, in a position of leadership and authority, what you are to do with that is to use that position for the good of others and not for yourself, to redeem it, to make something good out of that for the good of others. I remember a, a long time ago, um, before I moved to Melbourne, at a different workplace, I should be clear, um, a work colleague um, pointed out that in our team, as a whole, there was, there was one woman in the team and there's probably six or seven guys. We would interrupt her in meetings, but never the, the old silverback senior guy. All right? And at first I'm like, oh, that's nonsense. Come on. We're not sexist people. Then I started noticing it. And gosh, it was clear. And I felt angry and I felt disappointed with myself for being part of that. And I decided the next time I saw that happening, I have to do something about it. And I don't remember this, but I must have interrupted the boss or something and, and said, well, actually, I think she was speaking. And um, I don't remember, I don't, didn't think much more about it, but I heard years later how for that woman in the team, that was a, a turning point in how she felt welcomed and received into that team. Now, I'm so grateful for her honesty in telling me that because I was blind to it, as you'd expect, as a fallen guy in a fallen world. And so I'm really glad that I was able to, in that moment, use what position I had in that social situation so that she could have a voice. I take it that's, as men, our prime calling, actually, to use what position we have to make space for the contribution for the voice of women. Now, there's a bunch of other issues we could um, talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk very, very briefly about this other issue of respect, equal respect. We've known that uh, sexual harassment's been a thing for uh, decades. It's been illegal for decades. It's been around forever. But it's been illegal in this country for decades. But still, almost two in five women have experienced it in the workplace. Now, interestingly, I actually think that this is an area where the Christian teaching is... Um, <laughs> Well, actually, our society is rediscovering something of its Christian roots here, and that the wisdom in the Christian teaching. Right, when I was at uni, all my like, really progressive philosophy major friends were just make fun of how prudish Christians are on this stuff. Right? And the logic was, stop being so uptight. Sex is just sex. Bodies are just bodies. If you're hungry, you eat a cheesecake. If you're horny, do that. It doesn't mean anything. Groovy. It wasn't that long ago, but yeah. 
that was their attitude. And, and I kind of felt, yeah, maybe we are a bit prudish on this. But in retrospect, 20 years later or whatever, actually, I think Jesus was onto something. Amazing that the creator of the world knows how powerful sex is and how when you offer somebody unwanted cheesecake at work, that's quite a different thing than sexually harassing them with an unwanted sexual advance. And the Bible's known that forever, that actually sex needs these strong boundaries. It has a right context and a wrong context. And so I think actually our society is rediscovering some of the destructive power of sexuality, which the Bible all along has been pointing to and showing us that we need these boundaries. But I also think that the gospel can offer a vision of redemption. A lot of men uh, in the wake of the Me Too movement, particularly men in senior leadership of a generation that hasn't grown up with this, have actually reported retreating from mentoring younger women because they're afraid of things being um, uh, misinterpreted or maybe false allegations or whatever. Rightly or wrongly, that's their fear. And so people are sort of retreating from male-female relationships in the workplace. But our doctrine of redemption, our, our theology of redemption, tells us that there's a better way. In the church, we see each other as brothers and sisters. Because we have those strong boundaries on sex, we can actually be the family of God and have uncomplicated male-female relationships. I know it doesn't always end up uncomplicated. Sometimes it can be awkward. But the possibility is there for us as men and women to see each other as valuable, precious. I can be affectionate. I can value somebody. I can care about them. And I can see them as more than just a, a kind of a sexy bod that's a threat to me, but actually as a sister and vice versa. And to me, this matters hugely because women cannot thrive in male-dominated industries without men who are prepared to mentor them. Because we're all the ones in senior leadership. If I don't take on and encourage female PhD students, we won't have female scholars in 10 years' time. So in every sphere, I just think the Bible has so much to offer us with its vision for creation, with its realism about the fall, but also with its beautiful vision of what redemption might look like in an imperfect world. So I said at the start, um, gender equality, I don't think it's a women's issue. I think it's a human issue, and I think men have a lot of responsibility here because we're often in a, a position of power to do something about it. And it's an issue for us as Christians because none of us are flourishing as humans without women flourishing and men flourishing together in their God-given partnership. Now, I acknowledge these things can seem overwhelming, and sometimes it's discouraging to be working for these kind of, this vision in an imperfect world. So I want to leave you with um, some words from a very wise friend of mine, uh, Felicity Errington, who works in gender equality work in the developing world, in an aid and development space. She says this, and I'll leave us with these before uh, we, we have a stretch and answer some questions. My faith, she says, my belief that God cares about this more than I possibly could, and my belief that it will be very different in the new creation motivates me to do what I do because I believe it's essential kingdom work. Amen. All right. Well, friends, we have triple the wisdom this morning on our panel. Three panelists. Yeah, put your hands together for the panelists. That's good. Honor these people who've done lots of deep thinking on this subject. Let's have the first question, first cab off the rank for us this morning. If it's the case that women and men bring different things to the table, then we are missing out on something are we getting a partial perspective if only men teach us in our Sunday gatherings? 
death. Any thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, somehow I thought that this question might be coming. Um, I would say no. Um, I, well, I, don't, I would hope not, and I don't think so. Uh, I mean, one thing I, I love and really appreciate, I know about Guy's teaching and Andrew's teaching and your teaching and the men in this room is none of the men in this room get up and present a sermon without first, in the process, drawing on the contribution of women. I think that's really significant. I don't know if you know this, but I edit all of Guy's sermons every week. <laughs> I work with him in advance on the structure and, and talk about the flow and the content and the illustrations, whatever it might be, you know. Um, and I love that. And I love getting here on a Sunday and be able to see, you know, Guy preach and knowing, being like, yes, you nailed that. Yes, that worked. Yes, like it was, I played a part. And uh, that's a real privilege. Um, and Andrew does the same, and, and Ben does the same, and I know David Hills, he does the same. So um, it may appear, you know, like men are up the front on their own, but they're not on their, on their own. Uh, you also notice that here at Sudan Hill, we do things like this. Uh, I spoke about the Bible today. I hope I said some things that were helpful for you, and that's really important to us. We recognise that women have been given the gift of teaching, and so we want to find spaces uh, where women are using that alongside men. As I said, I don't think that means that uh, the contribution of women has to be exactly the same in every single space in order uh, to draw on both perspectives. I think it's okay and good, in fact, uh, that uh, personally I'm grateful that Guy uh, carries a unique responsibility that I don't have to carry. That's a sacrifice. You know, often we look at the kind of the main leader, the main kind of preacher, and we're like, wow, and um, how amazing, you know, and aspire towards that. Um, but it also is really costly. Uh, it's challenging. It comes with a certain weight, and I know a joy for Guy, uh, but I thank God that he carries a lot, and it's difficult, but he does that because he loves you, and he loves us, and he does that in partnership. Uh, with men and uh, and with women. Yeah. It's good. Um, brilliant conversation. Thank you, Steph. In conversation just before the service, you also had a thought to add. Can you add that thought? I know we're... It's a good question. Um, you had something to say. We anticipated that this probably... Because this is the question that I thought of as we were talking mm. on this topic. But um, we were chatting and I was just saying, I think... I wonder if sometimes there is, when we're having the debate around um, whether or not women should preach, and it's an important question, and I'm glad someone asked it. Um, it's a good thing to wrestle through what do we think the Bible teaches. I wonder if, in particularly maybe evangelical circles, we have a propensity to so overemphasize the Sunday sermon. It's important, and it's good. We're here. We're listening to it. But we then... Sometimes the assumption maybe is that we don't have meaningful teaching happening in other places and in other ways. Um, and I just think looking back, I've been a Christian now for almost 20 years. The thing that's been most crucial in my sort of formation as a Christian and the teaching, I actually think for me it's been Bible study leaders and mentors and friends um, and conversations that we've had um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole myriad of voices coming in and playing in, and even my own quiet times and um, podcasts I've listened to and things like that. And I think we're made to do learning in community, and the Bible teaches this idea of, like, teach and admonish one another, or this idea that um, it's the Word of God that is so useful for training in righteousness. So it's the Word of God that's doing the work, and we all have access to the Word of God. It's why we teach each other how to understand the Bible well. Um, and so I think this is a good question, but let's not forget that good, meaningful Bible teaching is also happening mm. every day in the life of our church because we're a body and a community. And I think that's what mm. the biblical model of how we're meant to do it. 
Wonderful. Thank you both for sharing that. Well, let's go to the next question. Let's see what we've got. To what extent should gender equality be given weight over ability uh, slash experience when hiring for a role? Andrew, do you want to pick this one up? This is a little bit on what you were saying. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's one where like wisdom is, is, is the thing. And just acknowledging, like I'm suspicious of any simple answers on these questions. I don't think always um, affirmative action that is preferencing uh, gender over um, other experiences, I don't think it's always the right thing. One reflection I have is, the more junior the role and the more opportunity that role represents, maybe that's a good place to actually, um, you know, like when we're taking, I mean, I keep talking about education, that's all I know about, but when we're taking on PhD students or early research uh, fellows and that sort of thing, that's a point where you can actually make a real difference. By the time you get into more senior roles, it, you know, either they're in the pipeline or they're not. So I'm, I'm less convinced that it's helpful there. That's just my wisdom, take it or leave it, but I think it's complicated. I think that's the importance of looking at the whole pipeline. <laughs> you know, often we look, we look at the top, uh, we look at the top leadership role, or we look at the top academic role, and we're like, well, we need to make a difference here, and that's true. But where does that start? It starts maybe that early conversation of the, you know, the, the, the woman. Have you thought about going to Bible college? Uh, that's obviously <laughs> the field that we're in. But in any field, you know, that early seeds of encouragement along the way. That's where the pipeline begins, and so we need to, we need to be, uh, I think, fostering a culture of encouragement, both for professional personally in so many different spaces. That's great. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for your wisdom. Let's go to our next question. How would you reconcile the role of headship in men and submission slash receiver in women in modern family roles where women are increasingly breadwinners and men in domestic duties? Um, Steph and Andrew, you guys are married. Do you want to yeah. take this question between you both? Steph, do you want to lead off? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that um, the concept of headship as service is actually... It's hugely freeing. I, you know, I spoke earlier about the way that kind of biology's distinction really frees up a whole lot of realm of possibilities of what it looks like to be a woman. I think it's the same with the concept of headship, of service, of laying one down, laying down one's life. So interestingly, um, so I, I grew up in Sydney. I came to Melbourne six years ago for a job here at City on a Hill. Um, as Andrew and I were trying to work out, you know, I was finishing up a Bible college. Andrew was in a role I was very happy in. And we were thinking about what to do next. What do I do next? What does that look like for us as a married couple? Someone showed me the position description of City on a Hill and I read it. I was like, wow, this is, I feel like this is me on a page. Like I should explore this. Um, we did. We got to know Guy. We got to know the team. We got to know Melbourne. And uh, Andrew recognised really the unique opportunity I had here to exercise my gifts and my passions. I wanted to come to Melbourne. Andrew would have been quite happy to stay in Sydney. Sure. Uh, and, and uh, so we had some, you know, deep, sometimes intense conversations about that. Uh, but Andrew's act of headship in that moment was, you know what, my preference would probably be to stay in Sydney, but in laying down my life for you, let's move to Melbourne so that you can use your gifts in a way that um, is really, hopefully, uh, good, good for this church and significant. And so in that, actually, it pursued the kind of, um, more traditional, like I think we we're both working at that stage. There have been times when I've just been working, you working. But I don't. What I'm saying is, the expression of these principles opens up a whole realm of possibility of what it means for the woman to be a breadwinner or not to be a breadwinner. Uh, and but ultimately, receiving the kind of sacrifice of the husband to enable, to celebrate, to care for, to serve. Um, sometimes it's convenient for women. Sometimes it's not convenient for women. Uh, there are times I've got examples of that as, as well. Um, but I think the principles are important. The particularities of how it lands 
will probably be as diverse as it is people and marriages in this room. You both talked about wanting to avoid stereotypes, and this is maybe one of the, the areas that we fall into stereotypes. Can you just say, Andrew, maybe you could say just a little bit about the way you guys, you're up here, you've, we, we can learn from your example, uh, the way you organize your life, your week uh, collectively together as a, as a husband and wife with the kids. How does that pl plan out, uh, plan out and, and why have you done it like that? Yeah, quite chaotic, um, but we get there. <laughs> so we both, we both work part-time, we both care for the, the, the kids and we have some, some help from daycare, etc. Um, and I don't feel that's any less manly to be a father, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I'm grateful that we live in a society where that's possible. Um, and I can go to work and work part-time and I have flexible work. So I'm actually all for, like I'm grateful my work gives me that flexibility um, because I think something great about being a man is that you can be a father. Um, and you can look after kids. I think that's really profoundly precious. I recognise that's not possible all the time, um, but I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful that I can see, by doing that, every hour I spend playing with trucks uh, means Steph can go and use her gifts here and we can benefit from it at church. So I see it as a win-win. It's not for everyone. It's not always possible. Um, different people have different inclinations. Um, so I'm okay if different people just want different things um, as well. But that's just it's worked out well for us. And so far, um, it's been a really a great blessing to me as a man to spend lots of time with my small children. Wonderful. So good. Thank you. All right, let's have our next question. Last question. If God's design is for men and women to work together in leadership roles in the church, except for the role reserved for a man as overseer, why were all the disciples men? Britt, you've just been handed the mic. You are it for this one. Um, yeah, look, I like the premise of the question. I really like, Steph, you talked about it in your interview and that idea that we are meant to really meaningfully co-labor together. Um, and you do see a picture of that, um, particularly in the Luke-Acts narratives, you see this idea of, yeah, men and women very much involved in the mission. Uh, Romans 16, really good chapter, um, Paul goes through and he talks about, and it's just as many women are mentioned as men. And so, um, yeah, I don't think we're just pretending that there's something that's there that's not. There is very much women involved. I also think maybe this is some of the evidence that we see in the Bible as we try and discern what it looks like to... Um, yeah, how, do, how is our church going to function and what is it going to look like um, here at City on a Hill? Uh, we, as we talked about, we have a position where we see that there are some roles that are reserved for suitably qualified men. And I think it's telling in the Gospels that Jesus chose 12 men. Now, there's an argument that kind of says, hey, look, that, that was normal of the time. And Jesus didn't want to kind of overthrow, you know, social expectation too much. He was working within the conventions of the time. My general impression is that Jesus wasn't too worried about overthrowing the social conventions of the time, given that he hung out with like tax collectors and prostitutes and he washed people's feet and um, he's God and he felt pretty okay about it. And I think he brought change where change needed to be brought. Um, and so I think maybe there is something in the fact that, but look, he still chose to have 12 men, but women were still very much included. They say they were there from the cradle to the grave for Jesus. They were there, and exactly how Laura said in that quote that, and the way that Jesus, yeah, he included them, he taught them, he rebuked them, he, they followed him. Um, just because they weren't necessarily one of the 12 disciples doesn't mean they weren't included meaningfully. Um, but yeah, it was a good question. Good question. I'm sure there were other good questions. If you haven't had your question answered, I'm sure these guys will be happy to, to chat over afterwards over a coffee or at the door uh, and take these questions to your GC this week. They're great questions to be wrestling with together in community. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing together as a church.
God, you are good. You are for us. Lord, your word is good, and it wants you want to see us as human beings flourish. So, Lord, thank you that we've considered even just the beginning of this conversation today of what that flourishing looks like for men and women. Lord, and I pray uh, that we as a church uh, will flourish together as men and women, and that we will impact the society around us for good, because, Lord, that is what you want from us and for us, Lord. Help us to, to love you and serve you and honor you with all that we do and all that we are as men and women, as human beings. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.